Whether you have a general interest in health and wellness, or you're a medical professional, we're here to provide you with the tools and resources to make informed decisions about your health. This is Health Use House Call, part of Hackensack Meridian Health's podcast. Here, our expert providers will provide you with wellness tips, information, and general health advice. This is House Call. I'm joined today with Dr. David Leopold. He's the network medical director for Hackensack Meridian Health's Integrative Health and Medicine. So today's podcast is going to be all about stress. We've been living through a pandemic for two years. There's concerns of nuclear war, inflation, plus just typical day-to-day hurdles like traffic and managing childcare or running late or having a poor work-life balance. We could really go on and on, but it's clear we're living in a stressful time and many people kind of default to this survival mode. So the American Psychological Association does an annual Stress in America poll, and they're just some numbers that are kind of interesting here. It's 87% are stressed about rising prices like gas and groceries. That same percentage noted a toll on their mental health from the constant stream of crisis without a break over the last two years. And 63% said their life has been forever changed by the COVID-19 pandemic. So Dr. Leopold, thanks again for coming. Do any of these numbers surprise you? Uh, Well, first of all, Katie, thanks for having me. This is a really important uh, topic to discuss. None of the numbers surprise me because that's reflected in the uh, interactions that I have with my patients on a regular basis. And certainly the last several years have been incredibly stressful for people and it's it's taken a toll absolutely i mean just normal life itself is stressful and then add everything we've been dealing with it's kind of exponentially harder so in your role i know everything is about the mind the body those connections do you think you can tell us a little bit about the mind body connection and the impact of stress sure so stress Uh, and how we deal with stress. And I think it's important to understand that stress is a normal physiologic uh, um, process. And so a a lot of what I'm gonna talk about is in the context of how do we we deal with stress? What can we do to mitigate the effects on our uh, body, on our mind? How do we use it in a productive manner? Uh, Because the notion that you can uh, reduce Maybe to some degree you can reduce stress, but to eliminate stress is just not going to happen in the modern world. And so what, what we do know is that the mind and the body are deeply connected. And uh, in order to have a healthy mind, you have to have a healthy body. So that's a whole area that, that I, I discuss with my patients. And to have a healthy body, you've got to have a healthy mind. So the interplay between the two is dynamic, it's fluid, uh, and they're, they're very interdependent upon each other. Definitely. I mean, it makes sense. It's it's all connected. Mm. So this is just the nerd in me kind of wanting to hear a little sure. bit. Do you think you could tell us about just like the process in your mind of when, when you are stressed? I know we've had conversations before just mm. about like the chemicals that your brain is sending, like dopamine and all that kind of stuff. You think you could... Sure. Dumb that down for us. Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, and what I what I like to do with my patients is explain all this because I think what it does is it it helps understand why some of the things that we talk about are so important. So, 
basically uh, the what we call the autonomic nervous system. That's the part of our nervous system that's not under our conscious control. It's the thing that regulates our breathing, um, what our, our heart is doing, all sorts of bodily functions. That very grossly divides into two parts. There's the sympathetic nervous system, which is fight or flight. That's what everybody knows. And then there's what we call the parasympathetic nervous system. That's what also is known as rest and digest. And recently we've added mend and tend to that. Uh, that governs our relaxation response. And so because we are under so much stress for so long, uh, and because stress is a survival mechanism, right? I mean, we needed to know how to protect ourselves or how to react to danger. So stress is in some ways the default mode of the brain and the brain holds on to stress very tight uh, to keep itself alive. And so what happens over time is that basically the stress centers in the brain start to sort of um, take over for lack of a better term. And then that becomes the dominant default. And over time, that becomes the way that the brain is functioning. In other words, we, when we're under chronic stress, our brain acclimates to that and we then uh, stay in that state of chronic stress. That results in a whole host of downstream uh, issues which are not just related to, oh, I feel stressed. It affects the way um, our our heart functions, it affects the way we breathe, it, affect, uh, it affects uh, things like inflammation. So when we're chronically under stress, our body is slowly upregulating and releasing more inflammatory mediators. And so you get this chronic state of inflammation and inflammation is associated with pretty much every disease out there. Um, and, and so it, it affects really uh, everything. We also now know that inflammation is also affects our own mental health. So now you're stressed, but inflammation also correlates to things like anxiety and depression. So you can see where you really get into this uh, vicious cycle. Definitely. I mean, it's got to be hard then if your brain is so trained to be in that kind of like fight mode to say, okay, we just got to keep pushing through it. Are there ways we can kind of retrain our brain so that we, we can be in a calmer state more often? That's the good news. I gave you the bad news. <laughs> the good news <laughs> is, the, the good news is yes, you can. And uh, we do it all the time. There's, there's many different ways. There are mind body interventions, things like meditation, mindfulness based stress reduction. We use something that's called biofeedback. We use a special program called heart math, but essentially if you work at it, you can retrain the brain to go back into that state of relaxation. And we do it all the time. Uh, in fact, I think it's one of the most important things that people can do for their overall health. And uh, when I talk to patients about stress, many people feel like, well, I tried to do that kind of stuff. I, I, I tried to meditate. I can't do it. I tried relaxation. It doesn't work for me. The reality is it does work for almost everyone. You just have to have training. It's like if you uh, tried to ride a bicycle and you couldn't do it the first time, if you said, well, I guess I can't ride a bicycle. I'm, I'm just not a bike rider. If you're taught how to do it, you can do it. And we teach people how to do these things every day, multiple times a day. And so that's the good news is that anybody at any stage uh, in life can be taught to retrain their brain to move into that state of relaxation. And from that, the ramifications are really um, very profound. I mean, in terms of uh, reduction of multiple types of chronic disease uh, associated with decreased risk of things like heart attack, stroke, uh, even diabetes and, and multiple other issues like pain. 
so it's something that we do all the time very teachable it's one of the things that i find most rewarding with my patients because it has such a profound uh, effect and a profound positive change on their lives i mean that would be life-changing is there anything you could teach us right now (laughs) well i think the most important thing (laughs) that i like for people to understand is how much power that they actually have to do this and that just because they tried once or twice does not mean that they can't do it we there are very few patients of the thousands of patients that i'll see every year there are a few that for some reason we we can't do this but the vast majority of people can be taught how to do this and it actually happens pretty quick i mean typically if we're using something like biofeedback it's usually about four sessions each one lasts an hour uh we use a a computer algorithm to help move people along. What is biofeedback? Uh, so biofeedback is basically, it's a great question. So biofeedback is this amazing uh, intervention where we actually hook people up to a computer program and then we can monitor what they look like under stress. And so everybody says, well, what are you going to do to stress me out? And the answer is we don't have to do anything to stress you out because almost everybody comes in stressed. But we can look at things like how the heart is beating and how you're breathing and muscle tension and more advanced biofeedback can look at things like peripheral blood flow because these are all things that indicate the body's under a high amount of stress. And again, if we go back to what I was saying earlier, where over time we acclimate, that becomes the new normal. That's the other thing that I want uh, people to understand is that a lot of people think that they're doing fine, but they're pro- they're, there's a good chance they're not. Um, we feel like this is normal, but when we hook people up to the biofeedback, then they can see that objectively it's not normal. There are objective abnormalities. Uh, one of the things that we use as a, as a metric is something called heart rate variability. And heart rate variability is the beat-to-beat variation of the heart when it's at rest, more or less. And there are microsecond differentials between those. And, and then when you crunch that into these algorithms, you get this um, metric called heart rate variability, which is very well established in medicine. It correlates with repeat heart attack or other adverse health events. And so when we get heart rate variability, we can then, uh, so people who are highly stressed are going to have a lower heart rate variability. They don't have a lot of ability to move from stress to relaxation, then back to stress. And so um, when you do biofeedback, we can retrain how to move along that continuum. And uh, a lot of these things uh, center around breathing, uh, breathe. And I can talk about that in a second if you want to uh, go into another question, but, uh, breathing is our own, uh, physiologic response that we, we have, all of us have it. It's, it's, it's just physiology that when we engage in slow rhythmic controlled breathing, it forces the body into a state of relaxation. And when you do this repeatedly, that's how you change your physiology back over to a state of relaxation. So is that a combination of, I'm sure when you meet with a patient, there's so many different areas you're going to look at. Like you said, you're kind of evaluating that baseline, seeing where they're at with stress. Is breathing maybe kind of the first thing, the first easy step maybe someone can take? Absolutely. We, we all have to breathe. <laughs> yeah, most, yeah. People, uh, most people over time start to breathe a little more rapid, a little bit more shallow. And, uh, and that's, that's sort of a natural stress response as time goes on. And so, yes, a lot of what we do at the beginning is working with breathing and slowing down the breathing until it becomes more rhythmic. So you're going, you know, if most people breathe around 10 to 12 times a minute, 
what we try to do is bring it down to maybe six times a minute, uh, maybe eight times a minute. And so as you slow down the breath, particularly on the expiration phase, that forces the body into that state of relaxation. And I think it's so important that people understand that because because meditation, mind-body interventions, breathing exercises, they don't have to be some uh, unattainable thing or some uh, you know mystical uh, thing that's going on out there. It, they're attainable for everybody. I want everybody to understand that they can do these. This is within their power to, to do it. And just by simply repeating these activities re- again and again, you you build up the capacity to do it more efficiently to do it better and it becomes um you know it's just it's the same thing as going to the gym and that's what i always tell my patients like when you go to the gym the first time maybe you can't lift a five five pound weight maybe you can't be on the treadmill for 10 minutes but if you stick with it you will get better so meditation mind body interventions breathing exercises they're like going to the gym for the mind if you stick with it it will change things will get better your body will start to reset itself that's good. Yeah. Those are good news. It's it's very valuable. Yeah. Did you notice personally, I guess, when you adopted maybe this these techniques, like did it have an impact for you? Absolutely. I think that mind body inter- I I always tell people I wish I would have learned this when I was much younger than when I first started learning about it because it would have saved me a lot of, you know, stress, anguish, uh, grief and other assorted uh, issues. So Yes, when you make this a regular part of your lifestyle and you start to practice these interventions, um, there's definitely a significant change. It improves, uh, for example, it can improve sleep. It improves, uh, it, it improves the way that we respond. One of the things that you do with mind-body interventions, and there's a whole spectrum of mind-body interventions, but one of the things that um, that we do with mind-body interventions is you, you're trying to you're trying to change the way people react. So people get a stimulus and then they have a response. And most of us have almost an immediate response to a stimulus. So you're stuck in traffic and all of a sudden you lose your patience. Mind-body interventions, things like, again, like meditation and mindfulness-based stress reduction, and to some degree, the biofeedback that I'm talking about, what they really do is they help build a space in between the stimulus and the response. And even though it's only microseconds, there's time in there for better decision-making. So you can say, oh, that person cut me off in traffic. How do I want to really react to this? Do I want to you know, lose my temper too, or do I want to just stay calm and proceed and, and then go about my day? I think most people would choose the latter. And so the mind-body interventions are really designed to prolong that space between the stimulus and the response. And so when you ask about how does it affect your life, it's almost in, in innumerable ways because our stress response dictates so much of how we go about dealing with everything. It affects how we eat. It affects how we are in relationships with other people, with our partners, with our children. It affects how we make multiple decisions uh, throughout the day, whether or not we're going to be physically active. Am I going to go to sleep at a good time? And so these types of interventions, I think I think their, their, their effect on people is extremely profound once they learn how to bring their stress into a way where they can they can control it a little bit more and they can use it more to their benefit. Definitely. I mean, with everything that's going on in the world, we we have no control in that. Mm-hmm. But I guess the 
the good news is we can kind of control how we're going to respond to these things that are happening to us. So, yeah, absolutely. In fact, in fact, that's one of the most um, that's one of the most essential factors of this of being resilient is is whether or not the locus of control is internal. I can I can control what's going on in the world, irrespective of what's happening around me. Um, when people feel like the locus of control is external, that produces a, a lot of stress and and uh, it can be very difficult for for people. So just shifting that and mind body interventions do shift that uh, to to um, so so that that locus of control becomes more internal that, you know, I can control what happens in my life, irrespective of what's going on in the world. Yeah, it's taking a little bit of control back and then also understanding when you don't have it, it's all good, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so are there any techniques maybe we could take away today of, you know, like a breathing technique or just anything that listeners can do at home? Sure. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that I think is really important for people and one of the my greatest joys as a physician is empowering people to to and giving them tools so they understand how much of their health is in, in their, their own hands. And and I think people lose track uh, in the way that we deal with medicine in this in this country that pe people have a tremendous amount of power to really to dictate and shape their own health. And so that comes down to things like what am I going to do with my, my sleep patterns? Uh, obviously, what am I doing in terms of my nutrition? I mean, there's, there are huge studies now that correlate what we eat with our overall state of mental health. So basically, the healthier you're eating, um, the more likely you are to have less depression, less anxiety, less stress. That was unheard of when I started in my medical career. If you would have said that, you would have gotten laughed out of the room. And now there's global studies that clearly show that. Uh, physical activity, you can't say enough about that. There are literally a thousand or more studies that clearly show that when people are physically active, stress is reduced, anxiety goes down, depression is improved, um, sometimes even to the same degree as, as with medication use. And then, um, then obviously things like stress management. Uh, so I think one of the things that's important and one of the things that I think is sometimes a disservice to people is that they think that if they just sit and meditate or they do some breathing, that their stress is just going to go away. That doesn't happen. It has to be comprehensive. You, you, you can't ignore branches of what's going on in your health and just focus on one area. Um, and the same thing is true. I see, I'll see a lot of patients who say, well, I, you know, one of the ways I deal with my stress is I exercise. That's critical. You have to do that. But if you're not having a designated stress management program that you do, then it's not enough. In fact, one of the rules that I use with my patients is that if somebody does not give me a stress management uh, or stress mitigating program that they use on a regular basis, then stress is almost certainly adversely affecting their health. It's very, very rare that you see somebody who really is just sort of okay with everything. A lot of people seem like they're okay with everything, but when you go below that surface, like we were talking about with the biofeedback, um, or just objectively, they're under much more stress than they think they are. But they've gotten used to it, or they think that they're doing okay. But eventually, most people have a breaking point where things are going to start to happen. So, you know, that's a very comprehensive answer to your question. But I think that um, it starts with the whole body approach. Then 
you add in your mind-body interventions. And that is everything from things like transcendental meditation or mindfulness-based stress reduction courses or just any type of meditation um, practice. Certainly things like the biofeedback that I was talking about are fantastic interventions. Uh, in some ways, these things, they're not rocket science. So anybody could sit down and start breathing and basically start the process. I always think it's better to work with a coach or work with someone who has experience in these things because um, sometimes, you know, while it's very simple, there are other, there, there are some things, I wouldn't call them complications, but um, it, some coaching can help along the way to make sure you're doing it the right way. Because if all you're doing is sitting there and breathing and, um, you know, trying to clear your mind, it's hard to figure out, am I doing this right? Am I not doing this right? But nothing's happening. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, so, so I like when people at least work with somebody um, so that they can get coached along. But, but at its, at its basic core, healthy lifestyle and then mind-body interventions like I was just talking about, um, mindfulness-based stress reduction, transcendental meditation, breathing exercises, that's the place to start. We do things like four, seven, eight breathing, uh, box breathing. Those are very easy to find on the internet. I mean, anybody who contacts uh, our department, Integrative Medicine, you know, we're always happy to send out the information. We have a beautiful handout that we created on creating mindful moments that goes over how do you sit, how do you meditate, how do you breathe. Uh, it talks about all those kinds of things. So we're always happy to share that information. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you think you could show us one of the breathing techniques today? Oh, gosh. You're going to put me on the spot? <laughs> I am. <laughs> well, I, I think... I want the piece you're talking about. <laughs> the easiest thing, um, and these are they're, these are available uh, probably on YouTube by people who can do it much more elegantly than I am. But uh, in general, if we're talking about meditation, uh, the the way to the way most people meditate is they they would sit in a chair like this or they would sit uh, on the floor on a cushion. The most important thing is that you're comfortable, and um, most people will sort of rest their hands in their lap, sort of like I have right now. Most people close their eyes, but you don't have to. If you're doing something like transcendental meditation, which is that's my training as an individual, uh, I I don't teach people transcendental meditation, but that's how I've been taught as a meditator. Um, so transcendental meditation has been around for like 50 years. It was the Beatles made it very popular. And from there, it sort of exploded. Uh, it's very accessible. There's teaching centers all over the place. So that's, I like it. Uh, but, but you don't need it to, to meditate. I mean, basically meditation involves repeating some in general, most meditation that people think of is what's called like mantra meditation, where you're repeating a word like a word or a phrase uh and then you're trying to you're trying to focus on that phrase and as a result what is supposed to happen is that all the extraneous thoughts that are going on are sort of not there now that, What's a common phrase that someone would use? So if, if you do TM, then everybody gets their own individual phrase. They have some kind of algorithm. Uh, and they'll, they'll, they'll tell you that that's really not that important. Classic ones would be things like somebody could say just peace or love. Uh, the phrase OM is very popular if you're doing sort of a Buddhist spin on it. Uh, it's really calm is another one that people use. So it's really anything that makes somebody feel at peace. And then there's just a, a repeating of the phrase, uh, breathing in and out slowly. 
I do want to say that one of the things that I think has been sort of a disservice to the public is this notion that when you start to meditate or do any of these activities that all of a sudden all the thoughts are just gone from your head, right? That there's going to be this great gold light, <laughs> soft gold light over you. Sounds good. Yeah, it sounds fantastic, <laughs> but it doesn't happen. What 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 happens is the first times you meditate and you sit down, you're flooded with thoughts. Again, I go back to the riding the bicycle, or the best analogy I've heard is is um, is 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 like letting a, a puppy out in the in the backyard. You let the puppy out; it's going to run all over the place. It it's not a trained uh, entity, and so until you train that entity, it's going to do whatever it wants. And and so with meditation, I think it's really important that people know that the first couple of times they do it, in fact, for a while, they're gonna have a lot of thoughts. You're, you're gonna have a lot of thoughts. But over time, those thoughts do start to quiet down. And that's really what you're trying to do. You're really trying to give the brain sort of a time out and, and, and a time where it can rest. Um, you know, because even when we sleep, our brain is still doing things. That's exactly things. what I was thinking yeah. about as you're saying this, because sometimes if I've had like a crazy day, it's going to sleep. It's like the brain, the wheels are spinning. turning and they're all coming back up. And I'm like, suppress. Yeah. Go to sleep. Right. So suppressing is pretty difficult. Our brains are designed to think and to be active. So, so again, the notion that there's just no thought, that just doesn't happen. But over time, what happens is those thoughts do calm down. And it it usually doesn't get to a point where there's no thoughts for the whole time that you're meditating. Again, going back to like transcendental meditation is 20 minutes uh, twice a day if you want to really be doing it, uh, which is, you know, that's tough for, for people. But, um, but for a lot of the time that you're meditating, there are thoughts that are coming. What you're trained to do is to observe the thoughts, observe them objectively without judgment, let them pass focus back on the breathing and then keep going. And and so, you know, we all breathe, we all have to breathe. And so a lot of mind-body interventions focus on the breathing. And if we go back again, breathing is going to naturally cause the body to move into a state of relaxation. It utilizes what's called the vagus nerve, which connects to our brain, our lung, our heart, uh, our, our gastrointestinal system. And when you engage that, it puts the body into a natural state of relaxation. Again, it's, it's not magic, it's pure physiology. And so when you do these slow rhythmic breathing exercises, that forces, so now you're calming the mind and you're calming the body. And the combination of those two things can be very powerful. Yeah, that's great. Just hearing about and talking about breathing more, I feel like I'm breathing more and I feel Calm. Yeah, good. So we're very relaxed. <laughs> it's here working. Right now. Yeah. Um, so we're talking a bit about you know the, I guess the positive ways of dealing with stress and those coping skills, and I kind of want to dive into the negative ways. Mm. So I feel like I've read a bit about alcohol, and so you know you have a glass of wine, you have a beer because it can calm you down in mm. that moment. But I feel like from what I've read, it kind of has that rebound effect where you can end up even more anxious than when you started. Is that true? Why does that happen? I guess, what's your take on alcohol for chilling? Well, I mean, in full disclosure, I'm a big fan of single malt scotch and I like <laughs> a good uh, IPA. I, I think that, uh, you know, with alcohol specifically, when used appropriately, uh, I, don't, I don't have a problem with it. It's obviously when it moves into abuse or overuse that you become concerned. Certainly with 
elevated stress, anxiety, there is the potential for increased use of alcohol. Uh, another thing that we've seen a lot of is the increased use of food as a coping mechanism. So particularly during COVID, uh, a lot of people gained a lot of weight and they really fell into some really poor um, eating habits. So that's another thing to be concerned about. There's lots of signs of stress. And again, I want to go back to what I said is that most people don't really know how much stress they're under. But in general, uh, some of the signs of stress are things like irritability, uh, being confused, poor sleep is one that we see all the time, uh, muscle pain, body aches, things like that. Probably the biggest thing that I see as a sign of chronic stress is fatigue. And we see so many patients who come in and they're tired all the time and all their labs are normal and we can't find out, you know, I'm saying it parenthetically, what's wrong with them. What's wrong with them is that they're, they're stressed all the time. And so their sleep is poor. Um, they are psychologically tapped out. They're at their maximum and physiologically they're tapped out. Their body's been running as high as it can for a long time. Uh, and, and so, I think those things are really important. Uh, and, and so that's why, you know, when I see somebody and we talk about stress, that's why I take such a comprehensive approach because you can't, again, you can't just meditate and be eating fast food and processed food and sodas all day and think you're going to get very far. You, you know, your body we are what we eat. I mean, that, that is true (laughs) as as, you know, we all hear that, but it is true. And, and so if you're not utilizing good materials for, for the body, if you're not physically active, again, all the things I was talking about, you're not getting healthy sleep, you're going to have a hard time. And, And so the reason I bring those things up is we did see during COVID and during high stress where a lot of those lifestyle, um, factors people really fell off and and as a result and the other one the other huge one um is is social engagement and and unfortunately due to covid you know a lot of patient a lot of people um took real significant steps uh backwards or downwards and it's been very very hard to get them back up to where they were before all this um because of the the lack of social engagement and removal from uh, purposeful engagement uh, and, and so that's been a real tough one, uh, to see. So I think if any of those things are going on, then, you know, it, then it's a good idea to talk with your healthcare practitioner and see about how do we get you back on that track to health. Definitely. So there's, there's lots of things that you can do as an individual to get yourself back on track, but what if you have a loved one or a friend who you notice is super stressed or depressed or anxious? Like what would your advice be to help? I guess, guide them in a good direction? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, I, I believe in a lot of honesty. So I think it's just having an honest conversation. Hey, I really I really care about you and you seem different to me than you were before. Is there something going on? Is there any, you know, do you want to talk about anything? Uh, and if they don't, then, you know, I'm here f- for you. And, um, and, and so I think there's that. I think that if you are an individual who utilizes uh, healthy behavior, then modeling that and maybe pulling somebody in uh, to what you do, sharing with them, this is, this is, look, I've been there. If you have been there, if you haven't been there, then 
you know, don't just say you've been there, but right. if you've had stress in your life, then uh, if you're comfortable sharing it or, you know, during stressful times, this is how I've gotten through. Uh, and, and then maybe even working on some of these things together. You can always take someone that you care about if they're with you uh, and go on a walk together or, um, you know, make a good, healthy meal together, spend time together, talk about things that you value. Another, another thing that I haven't really talked about is, is the concept of gratitude and sharing gratitude. And I think that's something that we, we really miss opportunities there a lot to share uh, with people that we care about all the things that, that we have that bring us joy and gratitude and purpose and, and exchange them. Uh, because even people who are really down can generally find one or two things. And there are studies that show that if you can just get people to talk about one or two things that, that they're grateful for, and you keep doing that and it can just be the sun is shining or I heard a bird and it sounded nice because there are people that they'll say, I just, I have nothing like there's nothing. And you know, obviously, there are people you have to be concerned about, right? And you have to get them to um, someone who can help them. But if we're talking about somebody who's just down, that focusing on the gratitude and building on gratitude over time, that starts to spawn and they become that, that those gratitude since, you know, feelings become bigger and bigger. So I think it's just about engagement. I, I think it's about not walking away and just leaving someone who's struggling. Um, and it's about those open conversations and sharing uh, how, how you as an individual have gotten through some difficult situations. Definitely. Well, I'm thankful that you're here. So I'm expressing well, my thank gratitude. You. I'm thankful that I'm here as well. Um, so thank you. I guess, how would you model that kind of conversation about introducing gratitude? I guess my fear would be if I'm seemingly happy and up and about and somebody's down and I'm like, hey, what do you, what, just tell me what you're thankful <laughs> for. They might punch me in the face. So how do you kind of gracefully enter? Well, I think it's a great question. And uh, I do want to, let me take a, a little aside. I do want to say I'm a huge advocate for psychological counseling. I think it's one of the things that is so underutilized in our culture and sending having people see a counselor and work with a counselor an objective individual who is not going to tell them that everything's going to be fine or oh you're going to get through this uh someone who's there just to hear their problems and you know i always sort of jokingly refer to them as like a, a trash receptacle for all your negative stuff uh, but in a lot of ways that's what it is and so one of the things I try to get people to do is to to at least try to work with a counselor. And you know, not every match is perfect, uh, but I think it's a it's a tremendously underutilized uh, um, way of dealing with stress, anxiety, depression, uh, mental health. Uh, we're all under tremendous pressure and it's not realistic to think that we can manage our own. I, I, you know, I tell patients all the time, I've never seen somebody who can diagnose and then manage their own mental health issues. We, we just can't. And we're all willing to pay for a mechanic for our car or a physical trainer, uh, you know, to, to, to help us get our body in shape or even a personal chef to come in. But people are still very hesitant uh, to, to utilize psychological counseling. And I think it's really a disservice that, you know, the, the courageous thing really to do is to seek help. And, and when people don't, they, they just, they tend not to get better. And when they do, 
they tend to get better. That's my experience over, you know, almost 20 years of, of, of dealing with this kind of, um, these kind of uh, issues. And so I really want people to understand that it, it's okay. It, they're tremendous resources and they should be utilized. They're, they're, they're life changers, really. Um, going back to your gratitude question, I, I think that, you know, you have to do it delicately. Right. And uh, you, you do have to be uh, concerned. But, but again, I think if it's an honest conversation, and I think if what you're doing is saying, hey, I'm concerned about you, I'm worried about you, let's talk about some of the things that are positive, which doesn't mean you don't talk about the negative. I, one of the things I do a lot with patients is I let them vent people come in and they are upset. They're upset about a lot of things. You know, I hear a lot of things about spouses, partners, kids, uh, work relationships, all sorts of things that they don't leave the room. And I think that there's a, a value to that, to letting people just get things off their chest. And, and going back to what I was saying about a counselor is when it's objective, when people feel like they're in a, a place where they're not being judged, it's very freeing and it's very, it really unburdens and it lets a lot of that stuff out. And sometimes you just, people just need to let that stuff out. So I think that if you're in that kind of a situation, one of the best things you can do is just be there for somebody. And um, you know, one of the things about just being there for somebody is that it's, it can be really uncomfortable. And so you have to sit with your own discomfort of this person is really uncomfortable and maybe you don't have to swoop in and save the day right now Maybe you're just there to hold the space for that person. And that's that can be really profound um, to just be there for somebody. Uh, it, unfortunately, I think a lot of times what happens is when people start to downward spiral, people run away from them instead of walking to them and, you know, being there for them and saying, hey, I, you know, I care about you. How can I help you through this time? And it can be very, very difficult to be that person. But it's almost always the right thing to do. You're almost always going to come out of it and say, I did the right thing. And, and then as a positive for you, you're going to feel better as well. And there are many studies that show that when you do that type of thing, when you're there for other people, uh, you in general are better. There are studies that show improved immune function, uh, overall improved health. So being there for somebody in that type of a way is actually uh, beneficial for you from a health standpoint. Release of oxytocin and uh, cardioprotective components of oxytocin. It, it, even though it's a stressful situation, if you're doing it in a way that's meaningful and purposeful to you, it actually changes physiology. So the stress is different than if you're saying, man, I don't wanna be here right now. Like I gotta get out of here. That is sort of a, a negative stress reaction in the body. But if you say, this is gonna be really tough but I'm gonna do it, it actually changes the physiology so that even though a lot of the physiologic response is the same, it actually becomes sort of protective to the body. It's fascinating. That is really interesting. Yeah. And I feel like we just turned this into a nice PSA to say, <laughs> check on your friends, call your family, just make sure you're there for them when they need you. And I think what you said about kind of being able to sit in the silence and the awkward is the hardest part, but you're right, sometimes people just need to let it out. Mm -hmm. They don't need you to give them the answers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. In fact, they don't want the answers. They, you know, often, they, I mean, yes, they want guidance, right? I mean, people still want to know 
what what might help me but yeah a lot of times people just they just want to be heard they just want to let it out and just just be with somebody who cares about them and and understands it's about being human um so i guess just to wrap up if there's anything we can give to listeners just a couple takeaways about managing stress and doing the right things for your mind and your body i guess is there any last tips you'd like to leave everybody with well, I think we did cover most of it. Uh, I, I would say that going back to what I was saying earlier is that, well, first of all, stress in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. So if we talk about what I just said, there's lots of really interesting research that shows that if we approach stress in a positive way, uh, in other words, this is my body getting ready for some kind of action. And wow, isn't that amazing? Like I'm I'm pumping blood all over my body and, and, and yes, I feel excited, uh, but it's so that my body can perform at its best. That actually changes things significantly. And there's really interesting studies on like students followed and testing and how they did better when they were given that information as opposed to just, just don't think about it. So don't, don't think about stress does not work. And so if anybody's out there and they're sort of in the, well, I'm just gonna don't think about it or suppress it. That's not the best option. There are there are, there are better ways to deal with it. So it's really about how do we deal with stress? Uh, and again, we can't. You know, yes, you can change some of your life so that some things are less stressful or or less prone to cause, uh, cause stress. But we can't eliminate stress. It's going to be there. And if you go back to what I was saying earlier, stress as a survival mechanism, our brains hold on to it really tight. So we, so understanding that we have to develop ways to offset that. It's a teeter totter and, and stress is always going to win. I tell my patients all the time, we can do all the stress reduction we want and we can do stress mitigation. You're going to leave this room and you're going to deal with parking. You're going to get on the freeway and your stress is going to go right back up. You're going to go home. You're going to walk through that door. And so in some ways it is a losing battle. We're pushing that rock up the hill. But what you can do and what I what I want people to understand is the tremendous power they have to balance that teeter-totter. And you do it in a multifactorial way. You do it by, yes, mind-body interventions. You do it by breathing exercises. You do it by all the small things you do during the day. You don't have to sit and just, I mean, if you wanna meditate for 20 minutes twice a day, Fantastic. I totally support that. If you want to do mindfulness-based stress reduction on a regular basis, of course, breathing exercises, definitely. But if you have two minutes, don't read the news. Don't open your app, your news app. Breathe. Sit at your desk and breathe. Or even better, you know, stand up, walk around, and then breathe. So there's an incredible amount of power that we hold in each individual moment as to am I going to make a decision that's going to ultimately benefit me or am I going to make one that is not going to ultimately benefit me in the long term? So throughout the day, people can do so many things that result in a decreased amount of stress. I would also include in that and just going on how much power people have is eat healthy, you know, bring healthy food to work. Or if you can't do that, make healthy food choices. It definitively changes how your brain works and your levels of stress, anxiety, again, depression. There's there's no question about it anymore. Uh, we need to move our bodies. We've become an incredible, incredibly sedentary society. And I could talk about that all day and the detriment of that on our health. 
But sitting all day causes more inflammation. It causes increased levels of stress. And so we, we need to re-engage physically. So now those two things are important. Um, go to sleep, right? I mean, yeah, sure, binge watch Netflix every now and then, but on a day-to-day -day basis, go to sleep, get your seven to eight hours of rest. The, the difference in how people feel is tremendous. And you know, if you don't believe that, just try it for two weeks. Take two weeks and say, okay, for two weeks, I'm going to bed at the same time, I'm waking up at the same time, and I'm gonna you know, really concentrate on my sleep. And you'll be amazed at how much better you feel mentally and physically. And then I think if we talk about um, things like optimism, joy, gratitude, purpose, which are incidentally all things that I never thought as a physician in my career, I'd be talking about these things. But when you look at the the data and the research out there, it's I think it's becoming overwhelming that those things definitively correlate with how people's health is gonna unfold. But the point that I wanna make with that is, those things are all teachable. So there's a whole field out there called positive psychology, which focuses on, so for, for, for the whole beginning of psychology, we focused on, well, why is this person miserable? Why are they anxious? And we learned a whole lot and we learned a whole about, about how to treat it. And then some people said, well, okay, that's fine, but what about all these people that are doing really well? Do they have a common denominator? And it turned out they do. There's a whole bunch of stuff that people who are happy, joyful, optimistic, positive, they do a lot of the things in the same way and they're totally teachable skills. So everything that I've talked about today, if somebody doesn't think that that's who they are, that's fine right now, but you can be the this other and this other type of person that I'm talking about. doesn't mean we change everything about you, it just means re skills of resilience can be taught. Skills of optimism, positivity, joy, gratitude, they're all things that if you do them and you harness them, they become part of your lifestyle. And you know the, the, the total cumulative effect of all of these things is so profound. And so if, if we're summing everything up, I just want people to understand how much power they have to really dictate their health, physical and mental, going forward—it's it, all right there with the with the right with the right teaching. That's great. Thank you so much again for coming and sharing all of this with us and reminding us that we are powerful and that we can make these changes in our lives. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's—I think it's so important, and uh, I'm, I'm very grateful to be here. The material provided through this podcast is intended to be used as general information only and should not replace the advice of your physician. Always consult your physician for individual care.